0: As you're doing so, I would invite you to take your Bible and open to Ruth chapter 4 as we continue our Advent series through the book of Ruth. And as you're doing that, I will remind you and you'll see on the screen that we will have a Christmas Eve service this coming Saturday night on Christmas Eve at 5 p.m. And of course, Christmas morning, which is a Sunday And so we will have church at 1030, no Bible classes next week, just church at 1030. So we would invite you, we would encourage you to invite family, friends, neighbors, randos, anyone, uh, people who may not want to come to church might be a little more sensitive uh, and willing to come to church on Christmas Eve and Christmas. So please take the opportunity so that they can hear the good news. Ruth chapter 4, our text this morning, will be verses 1 through 12. Ruth 4, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says this, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, And all that belonged to Kilion and to Machlan, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses, May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that by your spirit and your word that you would come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who is God incarnate, and by the power of the same Holy Spirit with which Jesus was conceived, amen. This week I googled this question what is the greatest love story ever written And so all sorts of lists popped up and the various lists would have all of the usual suspects that wouldn't surprise you Pride and Prejudice Romeo and Juliet etc But you know what none of the lists included None of the lists included the book of Ruth. And that's a shame. Because some theologians have said that if you take into account the literary genius of the book of Ruth and the theological prowess of the book of Ruth, that the book of Ruth may, in fact, be the greatest love story ever written. Now, because we carry some baggage from the movement in history known as the Enlightenment, uh, hermeneutically, we are prone to view the book of Ruth primarily as a history book. As modern 21st century Westerners, uh, especially Christians, those who accept the the, uh, inerrancy and the authority of Scripture, we're prone to primarily view the book of Ruth as a history book. In fact, the book of Ruth in our English Bibles sits right next to the book of Judges. Uh, Of course, Ruth is set in the time of Judges, and we view those as history books, primarily. But we are wrong. The book of Ruth is not primarily a history book. It is a history book, a book of history, a book of an account of historical events that took place, but it is not primarily a history book. Book and ancient Israel did not view the Book of Ruth as a history book. The Hebrew scriptures, the Bible that Jesus would have used during his life and ministry, is structured differently than our Bibles. You see, the Hebrew scriptures are divided into what we what we would call the Old Testament, are divided into three sections. The law, which is the Torah. The prophets, which is the Navim, Now, if you've seen Avatar, the Navim is the prophet, that's where it comes from, the Hebrew, and the writings, the Katuvim. So there's the law, the prophets, and the writings. Um, it's called the Tanakh, the Torah, the Navim, and the Katuvim. And so they're, they had all the same books that we have in our Old Testament, but they were in a much different order. And the book of Ruth was not right next to the book of Judges in Jesus' Bible, In Jesus' Bible, the book of Ruth is grouped in the writings with the Psalms and the Proverbs, Song of Songs. The book of Ruth, in the mind of ancient Israel, belongs with the poems and with the songs because the book of Ruth is a love story. And now we come this morning to the climax of this love story, and it's a perfect fit for us today because, as we have mentioned several times, today is the fourth Sunday of Advent. And on the fourth Sunday of Advent, when we light the third purple candle, we celebrate the love of God, the love of God in the advent, the advents of the Lord Jesus Christ, And throughout our series through the book of Ruth, we have noted, Pastor Kevin has and I have on more than one occasion, that Boaz is a type of Jesus Christ. That Boaz is a historical, a literal historical person who in God's providence is used to point us forward to Jesus. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said that Jesus is our glorious Boaz. That theme continues, of course, here in Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And so as we contemplate the love of Advent in this pericope, we will see how Boaz typifies Christ to us. And what what we're going to do is we're going to see four ways in which Boaz points us to Jesus, and we're going to use an acronym using the the four letters of the English word love, L-O-V-E. But here's our our summary. Here's the summary of what this pericope means. We'll call it our sermon summary. This is our sermon summary for for the morning, our big idea, our overarching theme, and we're going to see how that's true through these four ways in which Boaz points us to Jesus. The sermon summary is that Advent means the unworthy bride... Is redeemed by the love of the Redeemer groom. Advent means the unworthy bride is redeemed by the love of the Redeemer groom. And we're going to see that that's true through these four ways in which Boaz points us to Jesus. The first way, the letter L, okay, the way that Boaz pictures Jesus to us is by his leadership. Boaz pictures Jesus by his leadership. The Redeemer groom takes the lead in redeeming the unworthy bride. Now, maybe you haven't been with us through all of our Ruth sermons, and so you're like, whoa, why is Ruth unworthy? Like, why is Boaz worthy Redeemer? What kind of chauvinistic garbage is this? You know, like, what are you talking about? So, first of all, I would say I I need to refer you back, if you haven't been here with us, to our other Ruth sermons, if you want a clear picture of what we're talking about, you can go to our, our website, go to YouTube, Facebook. We're not going to be able to rehearse everything that we've already covered uh, in, in the book of Ruth, okay? So number one, I would encourage you to do that. But number two, let me try to summarize a bit. When I say that Ruth is the unworthy bride, I mean that Ruth is culturally and covenantally Unworthy. Ruth is culturally unworthy. She would have been viewed as unworthy in her culture because she was a poor, foreign, childless widow, and she lived in a patriarchal culture. She was culturally unworthy. In the ancient Near East, it was patriarchal. Women were not viewed as full citizens. They could not own property. If she did not have a husband or a son to take care of her, she was probably going to die destitute. On top of all that, Ruth is not even an Israelite. She's a Moabite. So in that way, Ruth is both She is culturally unworthy. She is covenantally unworthy precisely because she is a Moabite. Yahweh had covenantally cursed the Moabites because they were a people who were born out of incest. That's Ruth's family tree. That's her heritage. In contrast, then, Boaz is worthy by his character and by the covenant. Ruth 2 told us that Boaz, Boaz had a worthy character. Ruth 2.1, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So the text tells us that Boaz's character is worthy. Boaz is not sinless, but Boaz is a good dude. He's above reproach. But Boaz is also covenantally worthy because Boaz is legally able to redeem Ruth. This would not have been true of just any man, hence this whole situation that Pastor Kevin preached on last week in Ruth chapter three that we're seeing here in Ruth chapter four. There was, in in the law of God, in the Torah, there was a process by which uh, a dead brother or dead family member's family may be redeemed. It was prescribed by God, and Boaz fits the bill. He is covenantally worthy. But, as we saw last week, Boaz is second in line. He's not the most worthy redeemer, the most legally um, ready. And so Boaz then takes the lead to redeem his unworthy bride. Boaz leads through his initiative. The Redeemer takes the initiative to redeem his unworthy bride. Last week in Ruth chapter 3, Pastor Kevin noted that on the threshing floor, Boaz told Ruth he would take care of it. At the end of chapter 3, Naomi tells Ruth that Boaz will not rest until he takes care of it. And now, in chapter 4, we see Boaz takes care of it. He takes the initiative. He leads in this. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. The gate was kind of like the Israelite town hall. Um, It's the the place where the elders made decisions. It's where legal transactions were made. Uh, Think of Proverbs chapter 31, when it says that, uh, you know, her husband sits in the gates. That's what it's talking about. He's a leader of God's people. Uh, He's one of the elders. Uh, And so Boaz here goes, he actively goes to the gate. Boaz acts like a man. Boaz assesses what needs to be done, and Boaz executes. Boaz is legally able to redeem Ruth and Boaz takes the initiative to do so. Don't miss this part. Boaz takes the initiative. Ruth is unable to redeem herself. There is nothing that Ruth can do to redeem herself in this situation. She must be redeemed by a legally worthy redeemer. And so Boaz takes the initiative as a legally worthy redeemer to redeem his unworthy bride. Church, in the same way, Jesus Christ takes the initiative to redeem those who could not redeem themselves. Jesus is the better redeemer who takes the initiative to redeem his unworthy bride. Let us, let us not miss this fact. Jesus is did not have to leave the honor of the throne for the humiliation of the Christmas manger. He didn't have to do it, but he did it out of love. Out of love for his Father and the Holy Spirit, as the Trinity made a covenant before the foundation of the world to redeem a people for themselves. That's the primary love out of which Jesus came. But the secondary love is that Jesus loves his people. Jesus loves his bride. Jesus took the initiative, just like Boaz. But not only does Boaz lead through his initiative, Boaz also leads through his shrewdness. This is an often overlooked element of Christ's likeness and following Jesus. We get more providential language here. As verse 1 continues, it says, Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Behold. Like, oh, what a coincidence. Behold is the Hebrew word hene. You know, when you're, if you're, any of you are, if, you're, if you've learned another language or you're ESL or anything like that, you know that, or, or you're taught that as you're learning another language, uh, an easy way to memorize vocabulary is to think of things that it sounds like uh, you know, and to try to make that connection. So when I was taking Hebrew in Bible college and I first uh, heard that the, the Hebrew word he, hene was behold, I, I thought, okay, how, I'm, I'm, I, uh, behold something about Chad Henney. That's how I'm going to remember this. Behold Chad Henney. That wasn't in my notes. It's just how I, it's just how I always remember the word behold. So, hene is the Hebrew word behold. But what's going on here? The the narrator is cluing us in, uh, once again, that God is sovereignly overseeing this happenstance. The guy just happens to walk by. What a coincidence. What's the point? This is no coincidence at all. And like the business manager in Luke chapter 16, Boaz has a godly shrewdness about him with how he accomplishes his mission. As, as you're reading the narrative, tension starts to build as Boaz tells the nearer redeemer that Naomi is back and that Naomi is selling Elimelech's land this other guy is first in line, but if he doesn't want it, Boaz will redeem it. And so as Boaz is explaining this, we're on the edge of our seat, right? And we're, we're fully expecting Boaz to say, do you want to redeem it? And for this nearer redeemer to turn around and say, I don't, I don't want it. And for Boaz and Ruth to get married and to live happily ever after. And then Boaz makes the offer and the guy says, I'll take it. And we're like, what? (laughs) That's not how this is supposed to go. Ah, but Boaz is shrewd. Boaz is no dummy. Boaz is so intentional in how he does this. Did you notice that? He starts with the land. He didn't say anything about Ruth. He didn't say anything about perpetuating the name of her husband. He says, hey, Naomi's got some land. Do you want it? Well, sure. But wait. Wait. There's more. He says, oh, by the way, if you want the land, you've got to marry Ruth. You've got to marry this Moabite too. And you have to have children with her and the children are legally going to be her, husband, her, her dead husband's children and not yours. Well, the nearer redeemer, he hears that and, and he says, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to mess up my family inheritance. I don't want to mess up what my children would receive. And so he says, Boaz, it's yours. So they swap sandals. The deal is done. Boaz was not just worthy in his character. Boaz was worthy in his intellect. Boaz was shrewd. And this is another way in which Boaz is pointing us to Jesus Christ. Church, we so often have this picture in our culture, and in our churches, in our minds of a Jesus who is loving and who is humble, and Jesus is that, but almost like to the point where he's like dumb, that Jesus is, he's so loving that he doesn't get what's going on. That's not the Jesus we see in the Bible. In his ministry, Jesus displayed a godly shrewdness. Jesus commanded the demons and he commanded humans to keep quiet about who he was because Jesus needed to wait until the time was right to die. Jesus taught in parables so that only the elect would understand what he was saying with the help of the Holy Spirit. And in Luke 16, Jesus told the parable of the dishonest business manager. If you're, if you're unfamiliar with that or if it's been a while for you, go home today this week and read Luke chapter 16 about the dishonest business manager because through that parable, Jesus commands, he, he commends that guy and he commands us to be shrewd. In Matthew 10:16, Jesus commands us to be as wise as serpents while being as innocent as doves. Boaz points us to Jesus by his leadership, L. Secondly, Boaz points us to Jesus by his obedience, O. Not only does Boaz picture Jesus by his leadership, he also does so through his obedience. The redeemer who follows God's law redeems his unworthy bride. Boaz obeys the law as he redeems Ruth. Boaz does not selfishly take Ruth for himself before following the law, which he could have done on the threshing floor. Hey, who would have known, right? It was just the two of them. It was nighttime. She was laying at his feet. She's a poor, childless, widow, foreigner. It's he said, she said, and nobody would give a hoot in Israel about anything Ruth had to say. Boaz could have done whatever he wanted to Ruth and in the eyes of the people he still would have been viewed as a worthy man who would have known God would have known and so Boaz doesn't and Boaz says to Ruth I'm going to take care of it and Boaz goes to the gate and he sits 10 elders down because this is legally required And Boaz explains the whole situation to the nearer redeemer. Take note of this. Boaz is shrewd, but Boaz does not lie. Boaz is not dishonest. Boaz is not cheating the guy. Boaz is shrewd, but Boaz obeys the law. He does not withhold information. He is law-abiding. And to close the deal, Boaz trades shoes with the dude, because apparently that was a thing in Israel. We know that it was kind of weird and that Israel didn't do it because like, the reason that the narrative has to explain it means that by the time later Israelites were reading it, they weren't doing it anymore, right? So this was something that was going on in Israel at the time. But Boaz does that too. And Boaz's obedience to God's law prepares us once again for Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is the final redeemer who followed God's law to redeem his unworthy bride. Church, this is an important, non-negotiable element of the gospel. Why? Because God is the holy creator of all things. And God created Adam in his image as the federal head of humanity. But Adam sinned, and in Adam, all humanity fell in sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Nicene Creed then says, for us and for our salvation, the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, became human in the incarnation. This is what we celebrate every Advent and every Christmas, right? Pastor Andrew said it. Advent means Jesus is coming. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Jesus is truly God and truly man. And Jesus in his humanity followed God's law perfectly. Hebrews 4:15 says, Jesus never sinned. And church, this had to be the case because Jesus had to reverse Adam's curse. Adam is the federal head of a sinful humanity. Jesus had to become the federal head of a redeemed humanity. Jesus earned righteousness on our behalf so that when we trust in him, his righteousness is imputed to us. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Christians have a righteous standing before God for one reason and one reason only. We are in Christ. It is our union with Christ that bridges the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. This is why Jesus had to live. This is why his life and ministry had to fulfill the Old Testament promises. Jesus obeyed God's law fully, Jesus never sinned in thought, word, or deed. Jesus never sinned by what he did or by what he left undone. Second Peter one one says that we're saved by Jesus' righteousness. Jesus was a worthy redeemer because Jesus was an obedient redeemer. So Jesus pictures us by his or Boaz pictures Jesus by his leadership. L. Boaz pictures Jesus by his obedience, oh, thirdly, Jesus, uh, Boaz pictures Jesus, and this is most important here, church, by his vicarious redemption, V. The Redeemer stands in the place of another to redeem his unworthy bride. In fact, Boaz stands in the place of many as he redeems Ruth and Naomi, doesn't he? First, Boaz stands in the place of the nearer redeemer who is too selfish to help these destitute women. More on that in a minute. Secondly, Boaz stands in the place of Mahlon, who is Ruth's late husband, as Boaz will then perpetuate his name, Mahlon's name in his place. And finally, Boaz stands in the place of Ruth and Naomi who cannot redeem themselves. Boaz takes the loss himself in the place of all of these others to redeem his unworthy bride. Brothers and sisters, this is the clearest way in which Boaz is a signpost pointing us to Jesus. This is no coincidence. We are not reading this back on an earlier text. God created Boaz and providentially orchestrated these events in time and space so that we here now at Christ Community Church could read Ruth 4 and see Jesus. That's what happened. Because Jesus Christ is the true and final redeemer who stands in the place of another to redeem his unworthy bride. Jesus is our glorious Boaz. Church, Jesus stands in the place of Adam, who was the federal head of humanity. Jesus did what Adam was supposed to do. Jesus is the second Adam, the last Adam, in whom we find our righteousness. But Jesus Christ also stands in the place of all of the elect as he bore God's wrath for us on the cross. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, God poured out all of the wrath for all of the sins of all of the elect. I want you to think about this for a minute. Think about it. This is only going to work if you're genuinely a Christian. It's going to work too if you're not a Christian, you know, unless you're searing your conscience. But think about this. Think about the guilt and shame that you feel before God for one of your sins. Pick any one of them. Think about how guilty, how dirty, how shameful you feel when you're honest about the fact that that is sin and that you deserve judgment for it. Think about that. Now think about every sin you've ever committed and will ever commit and how that would feel to stand before God, be rendered the guilty verdict and then to spend eternity in hell rightfully deserved because of your sin. Okay, that's just you. Now think about what it would feel like to experience all of the guilt and all of the shame and all of the judgment for every single sin of every single Christian who's ever lived. That's what Jesus experienced on the cross. In our place, Condemned, he stood. But that's not all, church, because in our place, he rose again on the third day. Why? Because Jesus was worthy. See point two, because he was obedient, because he was righteous. Death could not pin him down. And Jesus kicked out before the three count, got that shoulder up. And because Jesus died in our place, his resurrection means that that we'll resurrect too. That's what it means. The promise of the gospel means the hope of resurrection. Now, it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen by birthright or by mere attendance or even by mere assent. In order for this to be true of you, in order for you to be a Christian, to be saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you must repent and believe the gospel. To repent means to turn from your sin. It means to acknowledge, as we did earlier in our confession and pardon, that you are a sinner and that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. To believe Then means to take the knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, to assent that it is actually true, and then to trust in Jesus alone. If you reject this message, Jesus will not stand in your place, and you will pay for your sins by eternal, conscious punishment. In hell. But if you will repent and believe, you will receive the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. Because, as Pastor Mike said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Man, not only will he do it every time, he's faithful. Jesus would get the perfect attendance award for forgiving sins. He is faithful. But not only is he faithful, like not only is he going to do it every time, but like it's it's the right thing to do. Because of the cross, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. That feeling of guilt and shame, it's gone. Man, maybe you're here and you've never felt cleansed before. Repent and believe the gospel. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So Boaz pictures Jesus to us by his love, or by his leadership, okay? We're spelling out the word love. By his leadership, by his obedience, by his vicarious redemption, and finally by his example. Let's remember that as we read the scriptures, there really only ever is one true hero. we got to keep that in mind. Jesus is the only hero of the Bible. No one else in the Bible is a hero. Everyone else is a sinner who needs salvation. But while there is only one hero, capital H, there can at times be heroes, lowercase h. Hebrews 11 as an example, celebrates many who came before us in faith. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, the Apostle Paul commands us, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we see in the Bible that men and women in redemptive history can be godly examples to us, even as we acknowledge this. This is the important part. They're only good examples insofar as they act like Jesus. And here in Ruth chapter 4, Boaz acts like Jesus. We've already noted many ways in which Boaz is an example to us, but let's consider one more as Boaz is contrasted with this nearer Redeemer. You see, the nearer Redeemer, he's the guy we should be talking about this morning. He should have been a godly example, but he's not. And you know what? We don't even know his name. If you look at verse one, where Boaz says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. That Hebrew phrase is paloni almoni. It's translated as friend. You can see it kind of rhymes. Paloni almoni. It's a Hebrew idiom. It means a certain one. It's basically the Hebrew way of saying Mr. So-and-so. Joe Blow. Mr. Irrelevant. And this guy is Mr. Irrelevant because when Boaz offers him the land only, he jumps at it. And then when he realizes that he'll have to take Ruth to, Ruth also, then he wants out. Keep in mind, this guy is a nearer relative than Boaz. This dude's related to them. He lived near them. They're all in Bethlehem. This guy probably knew about Naomi's situation, and he was doing nothing about it. This guy's Joe Blow. He's Mr. Irrelevant. His name is not remembered because his name is not worth remembering. He's not Boaz, and that's the point. We remember Boaz's name. Not only is Boaz remembered because of the book of Ruth, but Boaz is also mentioned in both genealogies of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3. Boaz was a godly example because Boaz acted like Jesus. Boaz redeemed his unworthy bride at his own cost. But as we mentioned, Boaz is only a hero, right? Lowercase h. Jesus Christ is the only true hero, capital H, in the Bible. Jesus was not only vicarious for us, through his life, death, and resurrection. Vicarious meaning he did it for us. He did what we could not do. But Jesus is also an example to us in how we should live. We call this doctrine Christus Exemplar, the example of Christ. Because Jesus showed us what it looked like to love God with our whole heart. And Jesus showed us what it looked like to love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus modeled courage and humility. Jesus modeled faithfulness and obedience. Church, we can rest in the fact that we'll never be like Jesus, okay? We never will. We can't do it. No matter how how hard you try, you could never be perfect like Jesus. But we don't have to because he lived and he died And he rose again in our place. So that's true. We can never be like Jesus, and we don't have to be like Jesus. But at the same time, since that's locked in, we can try as hard as we can to be like Jesus. Like Pastor Kevin said, we can rest in the meticulous sovereignty and providence of God while also aggressively kicking down every door that we find. And, church, there's no pressure. We're playing with house money. Jesus already won the game, man. Jesus is the starting quarterback who got us up 50 to nothing, and we're like the backup quarterback that just gets to come in. Get some snaps. Run the ball, man. Kill that clock. Jesus already won the game. Because we have the Holy Spirit, though, we have a desire to follow Jesus. And we have a desire to kill our sin. The victory of Jesus is not an excuse for antinomianism. It's not an excuse for lawlessness. It's not an excuse for sin. In fact, the opposite of truth is true. The victory of Jesus is the motivation to do everything you can to obey Jesus. We want to follow Jesus, we want to kill our sin. We know that when we do sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So church, let's do that. Let's kill our sin. Let's live in holiness. Let's humbly love our neighbors and offer them the gospel while at the same time we courageously stand for the truth of the gospel even in the face of Of mocking, hatred, or persecution. Husbands, let's lead our families. Let's not pass that responsibility off to our wives or to our church or to our school. Parents, let's raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Let's make the local church the center of our lives. Let's not view it as an option if we've got nothing else to do. Let's give to the church instead of whoring our hearts out for our own money. Spouses, let's be faithful to one another and love one another and reject the world's lie that marriage sucks and that lust and fornication and adultery is better. Let's reject that. Children, let's honor and obey our parents. Singles, empty nesters, let's give our excess time and energy to the church for the glory of God and for the building of his kingdom. Deacons and deaconesses, let's serve others in humility and let's love Jesus as he did when he washed the disciples' feet. Elders, let's preach and pray and love and stay so that Christ Community Church will be protected and provided for until Jesus comes back. James 2.17 tells us that faith without works is dead. Don't misunderstand, church. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. But if we are truly born again, because we have the Holy Spirit, we will want to obey Jesus. So, church, let's follow Jesus boldly. Let's follow his example, knowing that we're playing with house money. We've already won. If we fail, it's okay. He was righteous in our place. And when we succeed, Let's acknowledge that it was just him working through us the whole time anyway. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. The book of Ruth may be one of the greatest love stories ever written, but in reality, Ruth is just one chapter of the true greatest love story ever written. The scripture. The Bible begins with a wedding as God marries Adam and Eve. The climax of Scripture comes at the first advent of Jesus, where he lives and dies and rises again for his bride. See Ephesians chapter 5. And the Bible ends with a wedding. When at the second advent of Jesus, Jesus and his bride, the church, will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. Advent means the unworthy bride is redeemed by the love of the Redeemer groom. Boaz said it in chapter 3, there is a nearer Redeemer. He didn't yet even know what he was saying. There is a Redeemer, church. Jesus, God's own Son. Let's pray. Father, we ask now for your grace that through your word and through your spirit that dead hearts would be made alive. We so often sing the Christmas hymn that Jesus was born that man no more may die. That begins in our hearts when your Holy Spirit works regeneration and we received the gift of faith. Which is knowledge, assent, and trust. And so, Father, we would ask now for anyone here that is under the sound of my voice that your spirit would take my weak words and that your spirit would take your strong word and that you would work resurrection in the hearts of the dead, the spiritually dead. Father, we pray for your people, for those who are callous in rebellion. Father, we pray that your word would discipline them this morning, bringing them to repentance and a restored cleansing. Father, we pray for those who are suffering this morning. There are so many even in our body that are suffering this morning, Father. Suffering physically. Suffering in loneliness. Father, we pray that you would comfort the afflicted through your word. There is a Redeemer groom who loves his bride this much. Oh, may we know that this morning. May we feel that. This morning, Father, that the first and second advent of Jesus are because you love the world in this way, that you gave your one and only Son, that everyone who has faith in him, who believes in him, will not receive eternal death, but will receive eternal life speak, O Lord, we ask you now. We pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.